On the show today, I'm joined by legendary musician Colin Linden. Colin's played for musicians like Bob Dylan, Emmylou Harris, and he's also the voice of Deacon Claiborne's guitar on the TV series Nashville. And he talks to us about working on that show, as well as their tours and their recent quite sad cancellation. So stay tuned for more. Hello and welcome to Benjamin Mary McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and joining me on the show today is legendary musician Colin Linden. Now, Colin is a blues artist. He's released 13 solo albums, including one quite recently, which he talks about on today's show. And he's also a huge part of the TV series Nashville. He's uh, dubbed the voice of Deacon Claiborne's guitar. So he plays. He helps the cast learn their guitar bits. He plays in all the recordings, or most of the recordings, in the studio. And he's also the musical director for their on-the-record tours, including uh, their upcoming UK tour. Now, uh, it was very unfortunate that Nashville was cancelled about 24 hours ago today. And obviously I had this interview with Colin set up a lot, a lot, uh, long, long time prior to that, and uh, he does talk about his initial reaction and how the cast are dealing with it, and uh, what he thinks might be the future for Nashville. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with legendary musician Colin Linden. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Now, Colin, what inspired you to pursue music as a career? Really, there was never an, uh, another option. Really, from the time I was a little kid, uh, that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And fortunately, I was kind of around people when I was very, you know, when I was young, um, who at least had outlets to go out and play. So I started performing when I was about 12. I met Howlin' Wolf, which was the really pivotal moment in my life when I was 11 years old. And he uh, inspired me so much. And even by that point, I had already gone to see a lot of live music as a really little kid. So, uh, you know, wanting to pursue it and uh, being able to pursue it uh, were two things that that did seem to coincide. Mm. And what training did you go through to get to where you are today? Uh, Really the training of uh, sitting at the the footsteps of the masters. That's really, you know, the thing that was the greatest for me. And then the training of being on stage, Mm. uh, all of those things, and practicing really hard, listening to records, uh, having people around me who were more accomplished and generous with their time and their energy and, uh, you know, just being completely uh, devoted to it around the clock from the time I was a kid. Mm. So what do you think is the most valuable thing a young musician can do today to break into the industry? Well, the industry is such a strange thing. I mean, I, I think that keeping the shoe on the right foot is the uh, is is perhaps the most important thing, which is you know making your music with as much integrity and and honesty and character as you can, first and foremost. And uh, you know if you, if your if your focus is on that, in some ways it's a matter of finding places where you feel you belong. And uh, uh, you know one thing can lead to another. You know, if, uh, and kind of also knowing maybe where you don't belong. Um, you know, those things can help. Mm. And is that a process of trial and error? I guess it is. I guess it is. It's a little hard to say for young people these days. I grew up in such a fantastic environment for becoming a professional musician. When I, I mean, I quit school and left home when I was 16 years old. And at the time, I I was living in Toronto, Canada, and uh, 
the scene in Toronto was such that you could actually go and play in bars for six nights a week. You didn't make a lot of money, but you made enough money that you didn't have to do something else. Mm. So you could really, you know, play 30 or 40 guitar solos a night. And that is really great training. I don't know if that exists in too many places these days. So it's got to kind of come, I think, from a sense of community. So, um, you know, follow your own path, but also recognize where your community is. Okay. And at what point in your career did you discover your sound? Well, I'm, you know, uh, for me, I think it, it began with realizing that I could apply the things that I loved about the music that I had learned to other environments. I mean, my background as a guitarist is so much into 20s and 30s blues music, you know, Robert Johnson era and earlier, um, and being able to, but I also loved singer-songwriter music, which was part of the pastiche of pop music when I was growing up, you know, be it Chris Christopherson or, uh, or uh, you know, the band, or Jimi Hendrix, or Bob Dylan, all of that stuff was really based around roots music and songwriter music, and that was part of pop music at the time. I mean, I'm 56, so in that era, that was that was part of it. So uh, I listened to all that stuff. My brothers, uh, my brother had a country band, and my other brother played guitar in that band. So I listened to a lot of the great country music from the 70s while they were practicing in the next room. And I was sitting with my Blind Lemon Jefferson records trying to figure out how Blind Lemon was playing. So I was exposed to all kinds of roots music. And when I began to uh, take what I, you know, the stuff that I was learning from country blues music and apply it to uh, other types of music and other situations where I'd back somebody up or something like that, or I would begin to write songs that would be in a sort of a different style but would utilize some guitar from you know, my blues background, that's when things began to, that's when I began to sort of see a pathway uh, of something that, you know, I could do. And, and I also began to learn that there were things that I was not that good at that I just didn't, you know, I pursued mm. perhaps for a little while, but not for too long. Mm. Okay, so you talk about um, a long time ago hearing singer-songwriter in pop music. How have you seen mainstream music change over the last few years? Well, I mean, every generation brings something different to it. I actually feel pretty optimistic about where music is going now uh, in some ways because I think that um, the, the business has changed so much. The way people make their living from playing music is quite different than it has been, and it's not necessarily an easy path to pursue that way. So that's been a big change, um, you know, just in the, the accessibility of making records is... is uh, far greater than it was when I was a kid. If you were good enough to make a record, that would be a significant thing. Plenty of uh, performers and even those who did their own material never got a chance to make records. I mean, if you were at a level where you could make records, you know, that's fine. Now you can make a record with your iPhone. You know, it's so it's so easy. Uh, as a result, I think that we've never been in a, t in a time where it has become easier to become competent and harder to become excellent. I really feel it's a double-edged sword, but I feel like I would I would come out on the side of optimistic because I think that people, when they sing the the song of their soul, are gonna are gonna come through somehow or other. Hopefully. So, do you think that the internet's changed music distribution and creation for better or for worse? 
on the fence still. On the fence? Um, yeah, I'm on the fence about it. I think generally for worse, um, but maybe for better too. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I remember as a kid being able to go to the Jazz and Blues Record Center on Young Street in Toronto and uh, thumb through the racks to see what was there, looking for an obscure Tommy Johnson song on an Austrian blues compilation. This is when I was 13, 14. I was a weird kid. Um, and, um, and maybe I would go to the record store at the mall. They would have a small blues section, and there would be this rare English import of a Big Bill Brunzi record that would be amazing. Those are situations that actually have happened to me. And um, now I can find those songs by turning on Apple Music or Spotify. It's so easy to do. So it's a different challenge now. In some ways, it's ferreting through, uh, ferreting through the massive music that's out there to find out where your familial ties are. Because I think those who pursue music, it's almost like you find your family. From uh, from the from the music that you seek, and that's where the challenge is now. It's not so much looking for that rare record that's there because that's that's out there somewhere, but just sort of knowing where to go. So in that way, I'm on the fence about it. Obviously, uh, a way of monetizing it that can propagate the creation of music would be an important thing to strive for as well. And I don't think that exists currently. No. And that is, you know, that I think works against the uh, uh, against the idea that people can, uh, you know, put forth excellent music. Mm. So you you mentioned but these things might change. Of course, things are always evolving. But it's interesting that we we seem to be moving back to using vinyls and using records more often. Why do you think that is? A couple reasons. First of all, it's a great sounding medium, and it's in in its own way, it's quite an interactive medium. You have to go, and every 17 or 18 minutes, you have to go and lift the needle and put it on, and then take it off. You interact with it. It's a tactile thing. Also, the format, not only so good sounding, but it's great looking. The, the tactile feeling of holding a record in your hand and looking at the cover while you're listening to the music, it, it's, it, there's nothing to distract you from that. That's a wonderful feeling, I find. Mm. And uh, um, and those are the reasons that I think that people are uh, drawn to it. I also think people like to have something that's theirs. They like to hold on to it. You know, like it's uh, you know, like it's their teddy bear. I would, you know, I would cherish my records like that. You know, and uh, it would be something that I would love and look look at over and over again. Look at the grooves and see it going around. There was something just sensuous about the whole process and I see exactly why people are drawn to it, especially young people who didn't grow up with that mm. People still like owning something physical when they hand their money over Yeah, yeah, and I think that they there's something there is something magical, even something magical about the uh, about the finite amount of time that a record has listening to music in 17 minute section, or segments or listening to music in 3 minute segments uh, by putting on a 45 or a 78, it's a very different experience than, than just flipping around, than random access. It's a different experience, I think. Mm, it certainly is. So would you ever consider releasing or re-releasing some of your albums on vinyl? Yeah, 
absolutely. Uh, some of them, um, you know, the first several of my solo albums came out on vinyl. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, my newest album, Rich in Love, I'd like to see it come out on vinyl. It's just, it's, I've been so, frankly, I've been just busy. I haven't had a chance to kind of put it together to do it. Um, but I'm hoping that I will be able to, because it is a nice format. Uh, and the idea for me, I've produced 120 some odd albums. And uh, no matter what uh, medium they're released to, I always think of it as side one and side two. I always think of it as listening to between five and seven songs as one, uh, you know, like one piece of music that you digest and then you turn it over and listen to the other side. It's the same, essentially the same length. I think that's a good way to both get a sense of where an artist is, but not overdo it. Sometimes the records that are, um, you know, completest, especially in terms of reissues, where you're listening to four or five takes of something in a row, it can be fascinating, but it also can be more of a dry experience. Hmm. So you mentioned you released an album last year. Can you take us through the process of making that? Yeah, sure. Um, that record was made really, it was a, it was a co-production with myself and the two players who I'm closest to in the whole world. Um, John Diamond on bass and Gary Craig on drums. Gary's played with me for 32 years. And uh, Johnny is the new guy in the band for 25 years. And then for 18 years until he passed away in 2007, we had the greatest keyboard player ever on the planet, I think, Richard Bell, played with us. And uh, so our group has been pretty intact for a long time. And we, we, I had a body of material that I had worked on for a while, and I just knew that there was something about the way that the three of us would interpret it, Johnny and Gary and I. Uh, and I felt just that we had evolved so much as a band, not only through playing with me, but through all of the other experiences we have together regularly as musicians, because we're sidemen together. I hire them for things that I produce, not everything, but for a lot of things that I produce for other people. And I love them so much, and this material just seemed like it was really meant for us to interpret, especially in the wake of Richard's uh, passing. You know, uh, mm. we made another album. We made a couple albums since he's been gone before this one, but in some ways, I think that his influence on us continues, even though we've, uh, you know, even though we, you know, he's 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 been gone from us for nine years almost. Um, so we made this record in my studio here at my house. Um, I didn't know if we'd be able to get a cool drum sound. I didn't know what it would be like, because my studio, I mostly do overdubs and mix. But we set up, uh, I actually was going to a Nashville shoot um, one afternoon, and Johnny and Gary had been here uh, working on something else. They had come down uh, from Toronto and had worked on, were working on something else here. And uh, um, I came back from a shoot and the couch in the studio was gone. There was a drum kit set up. My wife, who is in, tremendously involved with, with uh, all of my work in one way or another, um, Janice Powers, she and Johnny Diamond, the bass player, had set up a bunch of curtains in the room, and, and Gary had set up the drums to make it sound really good. So I came back from the shoot, and everything was changed in the studio. And we thought, you know, let's try and record just right here, not even book another studio to work in, see what we get. And we so we spent two or three days doing that. We thought 
there'd really be no downside. The only thing is that, you know, uh, the worst that would happen is we would have some good recordings of where the songs are. And we were just so happy with how it, how it went. We kept on going from there, and we just cut the whole thing here. We had a few guests that we did in other places. Charlie Musselwhite, the amazing harmonica player, played on a few songs, and uh, uh, that was incredible. And uh, Reese Winans uh, played you know, from Steve Ray Vaughan's band and currently with Joe Bahamasa played keyboards on a few things. I thought that was wonderful. He was someone who uh, had a great deal of respect and uh, was very fond of Richard Bell. And Richard was very fond of Reese. So I kind of felt like he was a good guy to get. Tim Lauer, who works on the Nashville show so much, uh, who I've worked with a ton, ended up playing on a couple songs. And my great friend, Amy Helm, who is a wonderful singer-songwriter and the daughter of Levon Helm, an old, an old friend of mine, too, and hero of mine. Um, she sang on a few of the songs as well. So that's pretty well the process of it. That's a pretty amazing process. I mean, being, being able to do that in your own home must have been fantastic. It really was. There was something about it that way, and I think the thing that made it possible to do was a really simple thing. It's just the generosity of spirit of John Diamond and Gary Craig and of my wife. For uh, for just because I don't know if we could have made any record here, but this record we kind of couldn't have made anywhere else. Mm. And where can people find that to buy it? Uh, it's on a label based in Canada called Stony Plain Records, and it's distributed throughout the world uh, in uh, you know where in the six record stores that continue <laughs> to exist. But you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and uh, you can get it through StonyPlainRecords.com. You can get it through my website, which is ColinLinden.com. Um, and uh, that's my 13th solo album. That's, that's a pretty impressive number. How many more are you planning on at the moment? Oh, as many as, as, many as, uh, as, many as I'm given. I want to be making up songs and playing them and recording them as long as I, as long as I can. Mm. You know, I made a live album. My first album was a live album uh, that I made when I was 20, and then I'm, and it's just called Colin Linden Live. And that's actually still available. It's available again after not being available for a long time. And then I made another live album 30 years later called Still Live. Uh, and that came out in 2011, I guess, and uh, 30 years after the first one. And then uh, I hope that I can live long enough to make another one. Uh, you know, 30 years after the second live album, and I'll call it Barely Alive. And uh, well, barely lie. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that I can at least, you know, I'm hoping at least I can make it, you know, you know, to, to uh, you know, to, to age 80 and do that. That'd be fantastic. It's a nice running gag for your longtime fans. Well, it also keeps my focus on the future, which is a good thing to keep your focus on sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Now, you've also had the incredible opportunity to play and back up some legendary artists. Who's been your favorite to work with? Bob Dylan. That's a, yeah, that's a pretty impressive name. It is. It is. All my life I wanted to play with Bob Dylan more than any other sideman gig I ever had from the time even before I was a, uh, before I could really play guitar. Um, more than just kind of dreaming of playing guitar. That's who I wanted to play with. And uh, I finally got to do it for a bunch of the summer of 2013. And I loved every minute of it. I made a bunch of new friends, and uh, the band welcomed me as warmly as anyone could be welcomed. I really feel like I made I made great friends, and and uh, Bob was fantastic. And 
and I loved it. And, and uh, I would I would drop anything I, I was doing to get to play with him more because mm. I enjoyed it so much. And uh, um, and it was you know, really a great experience. And I played with other amazing artists: Sammy Lou Harris, Bruce Coburn, uh, T Bone Burnett. Buddy Miller, uh, so many people over the years, tons of people in the studio, Greg Allman, uh, Cassandra Wilson, Diana Krall, um, all incredible artists and, uh, um, you know, and other people who I love every bit as much who are maybe not as well known too. Uh, so there's, uh, so I feel so lucky to, mm. you know, to be able to play, to, to accompany people. It's one of the great honors ever to be able to do that. Some of my early blues heroes I got to play with, Sam Chapman. Uh, I made his last record with him when I was uh, 19 years old. And uh, it, he was 81. It was my first album all the way through, and it was fantastic to be able to do that. Mm, must, so there's yeah. lots of them, but Bob tops them. It must be so lovely when you get to work with your heroes and they're everything you expect them to be. Well, it's fantastic that it turns out that way. I think that in a lot of ways, you just, you, uh, you know, you accept that those people are actually who they are, not, you know, you know, and you just deal with the person you're dealing with and, and the music you're dealing with. Um, and I think that if you, you know, maybe don't have an expectation of how that's going to turn out and maybe just more of an expectation that you're just going to throw yourself into it and uh, use your instincts and uh, play with all your heart. Mm. And it turns out okay. Well, it's worked so far. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in addition to all your recording and performing, you've also been a huge part of the TV series Nashville. Now, how do you describe your role on the show? Well, it's it's a really multifaceted role. Um, I started on the show um, really at the very beginning uh, when T-Bone Burnett was the uh, executive music producer, and T-Bone has been such a wonderful mentor and friend. T-Bone's wife, Kelly Coury, created the show. So uh, I worked at it on it from the beginning, uh, initially playing on some of the sessions, and then teaching the actors their parts because the actors all did their own singing but they mimed their guitar parts especially those characters who play guitar uh mimed their parts i mean there's some characters who are only singers but uh um so they brought me in really you know before the show ever aired to work with a couple of the actors who were you know they were guitar players but uh, i played the parts in the studio or buddy miller played the parts in the studio or someone else did um, so they got me in for that, and then it evolved into really within the first couple of episodes into supervising the shoots to make sure that everybody did the parts right and to be there on the ground with anybody if they needed any help. So th- that was those were the roles, uh, how they started. In season two, T-Bone had left, and Buddy, who had been like T-Bone's right-hand man in the first season, had uh, had uh, essentially inherited the role of executive music producer. And Buddy just said, would you come and play on all the sessions? And I said, God bless you, Buddy Miller. <laughs> and because uh, Buddy's such a wonderful player himself. So I ended up playing from then on, uh, really on almost all of the stuff, or at least all the stuff, that, really all the stuff that Buddy produced. Um for it uh, with a couple of couple of sessions I couldn't do, but really aside from that, I did all of it for the you know for the remaining three years, 
and uh, uh, you know your roles continue to evolve. When they at at the end of season two wanted to take some of the cast out on the tour, on tour, uh, they asked me if I would be the band leader to do that, and I was thrilled to do that. I got to hire the guys in my band, John Diamond and Gary Craig, to come out and be the band with a few other great players from here in Nashville to uh, to uh, to fill it out. Um, and it, it was wonderful. And, you know, at the same time, when the different cast members would perform, uh, even sometimes on the road, but uh, very frequently here in Nashville, on the Grand Ole Opry, other places, they often called me to come and play with them. And it was just a thrill to do it. A wonderful group of people. Um, it's like being in a band with several hundred of your closest friends because the crew and the, the support team for the show was so wonderful too Mm. it sounds like a truly wonderful experience absolutely nothing like it Mm. so would you say that over the past four years you've seen all the cast grow and develop as musicians and is that rewarding for you seeing you're helping and and teaching them it's one of the greatest things ever i never you know because i was such a kid when i started i was definitely uh, mentored much more than i ever had a chance to mentor and I do feel that turning around a little bit um, in some cases with some of the cast, even just, you know, being able to help them find their footing, not even in terms of kind of a personal maturity as much as just kind of finding their own musical identities. And uh, it's incredibly fulfilling. And everybody, all the cast members worked so hard and were so unjaded about making music. Making music was an honor and a thrill for them. And in that way, it was such a fulfilling thing for me as well, just because knowing that they really, really cared about making it right. Mm. Mm. Now, as some of our listeners may know, Nashville was sadly cancelled yesterday. So now looking back, what did the show mean to you? It, 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 for starters, it was the creation of a culture that uh, involved music, it involved drama, it went beyond the scope of uh, a particular genre. It broke a lot of barriers that way, I think in a, in a good way. And for me, it made me feel in so many ways like I really found my own footing as a member of the community here in Nashville in a way that I ever had before. Not that I didn't feel welcome here or didn't feel great. I had already lived here for you know, 12 years or more than that. I guess I lived here for, um, you know, 14 or 15 years by the time that the show started. But when I got involved with the show, it was something that the whole city felt great about. And it changed the whole city. So I felt like I was involved in something that had a different kind of intrinsic value beyond just playing music. And it was certainly not something that you kind of claim responsibility for, but you feel you're a participant in. Mm. And it was a gigantic honor to do that. And I love this city so much. I love living in Nashville so much. And there's such a beautiful... It's a little emotional, you know? <laughs> a beautiful sense of community here. And uh, um, hopefully the, uh, the half-lives of the show will continue to make people feel real good, you know. Mm. The, the cast members continuing to perform, continue to develop their own music. There's, I think there's a 
great bond between the people who love the show and the people who make the show too. That's pretty unique, I think, for a television show. Well, I was in in Nashville last December, and the atmosphere that the show's created is is so vibrant, and people are coming from all over to see the city and to see the Bluebird and the Opry, and I think that that yeah. is a testament to what the show has been able to do in just four years. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true, and uh, it just uh, I don't think that it was something that came about as a result of uh, uh, any kind of savvy planning. Although everybody, you know, at the show works very, very hard to make good moves and all that in terms of, the, you know, what the show said. But I think a lot of it was just that it uh, it ignited a love affair between people who love this kind of music and who can relate to these characters mm. and the people who actually make it. I mean, you know, there's uh, the, the, uh, the, the way that the, the cast feels about their fans and the people who love the show it's inspiring to me there's nothing about it that's cynical at all it's it's a genuine caring and uh, I think that's a beautiful thing yeah now as you said you have been out on the road recently with some of the cast are the type of people attending these Nashville concerts different to your average country music fans I think they are because I think that uh that they were drawn to the show for so many different reasons, you know. So as a result, there uh, there's a sense that, you know, some of them are Stone Country fans and got turned on to the show because they loved the music and they were fascinated with the music uh, that way. But also a lot of them are just uh, music lovers and and uh, TV lovers. But really, uh, the people who like our show, I think, really love music, and that is. Um, that's a really significant thing. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, definitely it feels like a different group of people um, would come to a show, you know, a Nashville cast tour show. Mm. So, you know. I do, yeah, yeah. And um, you're about to head over to the UK. So for those yet yeah. to see the shows, what can fans expect from Nashville live in the UK? Well, one of the things that's so great about that, about the uh, about the show uh, as it as it travels, is uh, there's this fantastic um, kind of collaborative spirit that happens on the live shows. You know, this Sam Pilati will get up and play drums on on a song, and Chris Carmackle, who's who's really turned into quite a fine electric guitar player, you know, will you know with that a B.B. King song and sit in on some, you know, on other songs that other people are playing. Uh, Chip and Claire, uh, Chip Estin, Charles Estin and Claire Bowen have such a wonderful chemistry in what they do. It's just, you know, it's uh, um, the, the crosstalk between everyone is very, is really exciting and really unique. Well, that must be a fantastic atmosphere to have surrounding you 24-7. It is. It's a lot of work because the shows change night by night too. You know, it's one of the great things about having our fans kind of follow the uh, follow the show on Twitter and uh, you know and, and uh, you know see what you know and all the other social media stuff and see what see what we've done because the shows are all different. Mm. So, what's the most challenging song you've had to play so far? The most challenge in in, in it- life. Uh, well, uh, in in the Nashville tour. 
And then that, the most challenging song, hmm. Uh, it'd be hard to say. Uh, probably something that involves a lot of different harmony parts. Just do a loop to wood. While I'm playing guitar, I'm trying to think what that might be. Um, gosh, it, it, I'd have to think, you know, probably in the first few days it was more challenging than after you played a bunch of them. Mm. A lot. Uh, some of them are pretty emotional to play and probably will be even more so when we go out to the UK. So sometimes it's not a technical challenge as much as it is just um, Claire Bowen has a, a new song that her fiancé who comes on the road with us is a great singer-songwriter named Brandon Young uh, that he and a friend of his wrote for Claire. It's called Love Steps In and it's very emotional. You know, what it's about is very emotional of course, she's from Australia, so I'm sure you guys, I hope that you guys are, are proud of that Australian angel. Um, and um, she's going to be doing a tour of her own down there starting, I think, next week or something like that. Yeah, but she's that here quite is, soon. That song is a big song to play because it's just, it has it has a weightiness and um, you just want to do it right. Mm. Now, obviously, fans are quite distressed that Nashville has been cancelled, but what a lot of people are asking is, do you know if they'll be uh, on the record album for this last tour? Because every other tour has had a, a live CD. You know, I don't know if there will be. We we recorded the show at Madison Square Garden, and we're recording one of the shows in London. Um, the word that I heard was that if we had gotten the pickup that the film crew and the uh, recording crew would come out for all of the UK. And if we didn't get the pickup, it would only be for the one show at London. So I don't know the answer for sure. Uh, I know that there will be four songs that are coming out. I just, you know, uh, I've been working on mixing that stuff the last couple of days um, and finishing, finishing the couple of songs from Madison Square Garden. Um, so I don't know. I hope. It'd be mm. really nice if there was another on the record. Mm. So at least there'll be videos potentially of a couple of the concerts. Yeah, certainly of, of four of the songs. I hope that there's enough good stuff and enough interest to turn that into, you know, another on the record. Although I don't know if that's even their plan now. I mean, it's everything's changed in the last 24 hours. You know, we just found out that we, you know, that we were getting gone uh, less than 24 hours ago. Uh, just about 22 hours ago. Mm. Mm. So have you had much uh, you know, conversation with the cast or your fellow crew from, from the Nashville set? What's the atmosphere been like in the past 22 hours? Well, I think everybody is tremendously disappointed and everyone is tremendously grateful. So I think there's been a lot of people reaching out to one another just sort of saying, hey man, or however you say it, thank you so much for everything. And... Uh, and um, you know, this is a this was an incredible experience. I know that Charles Aston. I mean, he said to me years ago. He said, you know, this is like having the greatest job in the world with a trapdoor. <laughs> you know? So he's you know he's an experienced enough actor to know that this stuff does happen. Mm. I think what we have is an ensemble. You know, and that that's the crew, the cast, the music department. Um, we have a genuine 
you know, I'm, I'm sure there's people who bicker with one another who get along better with some than get along with others. But gen, there's, I think, a genuine, real camaraderie between everybody that, on the one hand, makes it very sad to see it end. Um, on the other hand, gives you some optimism that the relationships are going to continue beyond the show and, and the music is such a big part of that. You know, you hear Chris Carmack go out and sing songs or Sam Pilate or any of them. Jonathan Jackson's amazing. You know, they go out and they sing songs from the show. They sing their own music and play their own music. And, uh, and you know that that's something that's not, it's not based on being on a television show. It goes, it goes, Deeper than that comes from somewhere deeper than that to begin with. So you feel somewhat optimistic that these relationships are not going to end, even if the, the television show ends. Mm. So do you think you'll continue to collaborate with the artists now that the show is coming to an end? I sure hope so, and I, and I, and I think so. I actually do. I can't imagine not. I mean, people go in different directions in their lives, but remember, these people were established as actors, but none of them didn't have some music in their background and uh, certainly the, the people who go out and play live you know some of them are, are less inclined to, to do that you know Connie Britton um, you know that did, did, didn't really you know she had a music background a long time ago but I don't think she wants to pursue a career in music or anything like that the, most of the others though do by the way Connie I think has done a superb job even in, you know like, even uh, as humble as she is about her own musical aspirations. I think she's done a great job. Um, so I would, I would be really surprised if, uh, if we didn't do some more music together. And I hope there are some really active half-lives. Uh, I had always hoped, and I don't know, maybe it's not too late for something like this to happen. I had always hoped that the venue on TV called the Beverly would turn into a real venue, that they would make it in a, in a real place for people to go. So, because there's so much tourism based around the show here in Nashville. Mm. And if it were a venue where uh, people who, uh, you know, cast members, if, if they're here and want to play, they can do it. The songwriters who write the songs for the show, the players who play the music, the people who portray the bands are all really good players too. There's so many different, uh, you know, different tributaries based on the music of the show that it would be a wonderful thing to have a real venue to uh, to continue to, to propagate that culture. That'd be fantastic. Have you pitched that to someone yet? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I have. I don't know exactly what it means, because frankly, we, we thought, you know, this came as a bit of a surprise. We knew that this could happen, but we did think that we might even get another half season. So, uh, uh, so I think that it, it got cancelled a little sooner than we thought it would. So I don't know if my proposals or ideas, you know, I don't know where they're going to go to, but uh, I'm going to continue to talk about it, including talking to you about it. Well, the internet is a, is a huge place with a lot of power, so put it out there and who knows what can happen. You, you bet. And, you know, a good idea is a good idea, right? Exactly. Exactly, and people love this show. That's that's the one thing that I think everyone's seen on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. People are really getting behind, you know, trying to save Nashville. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. So, uh, and I do, you know, I feel I feel pretty passionate about it myself. Mm. You know, even if it's 
you know, even if it's just in vain, uh, it's not really in vain because the people have, have, uh, the fans have been so wonderful to all of us, you know, really great. So it's worth, it's, it's worth staying in touch with one another somehow or other, you know? Of course. Yeah. Now I know one of the, the, the biggest concerns that a lot of fans seem to have is, every other season of Nashville has ended on a major cliffhanger. Obviously, I don't want you to spoil the show, and I'm sure you can't, but do you think there's a fitting conclusion for the series? I actually don't know. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't know how it ends. Uh, because, you know, I had read different scripts, and there were uh, there's usually like maybe five or six different versions of every script or something. So it's, um, it's uh, quite a... Uh, um, you know, it's quite a um, kind of a challenge to uh, to um, keep track of everything that uh, uh, that that happens. So I don't know which ending they ended up going with, and I might also, you know, there's certain things that they might have shot that you know that I didn't really have a lot of access to anyhow. So you know, it's, anyhow, in other words. I don't know. I hope it ends well. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, it does wrap up in, in two episodes' time. Is there anything you'd like to say to the fans before before the, the, the curtain? Oh, just, you know, it sounds so corny. I hear people say this all the time, and I, 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 one could roll one's eyes about it, but we really love you. Thank you so much. Thanks for caring about this music. And know that... we we give it everything we have and uh, we're honored you know I can speak for the music department we're so honored to be involved in it and keep keep supporting no matter if we can revive it or if we can't revive it just you know keep supporting the the cast as they develop their music and the writers seek out the writers who write the songs and the players who play because so many people so much of what makes this something that the fans love is that it comes from a place where all the people who work on it love it too. Mm. Those are the very true words, and I, I truly hope that you know, the listeners of this show and fans of Nashville continue to support the artists because you've got some amazing voices on that show. There are some truly incredible musicians. Well, thank you so much. I really I feel that's true, though. I feel like we really have a wonderful, a wonderful crew. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to see a few of the cast at the Opry uh, last December. I mean, Aubrey and uh, Chris and uh, Deacon, uh, Charles Eston and Claire. And they yeah. the, the way they perform is is fantastic. They, they truly have stage presence and a sense of musicality that you may not see on other, you know, from other actors playing musicians. To have that realism is a testament to the show. Yeah, I, I feel that. I feel that. I'm so glad that you do too, you know, because that's so such a huge part of it. Is uh, uh, is they're not they're not fooling. It's a funny thing, isn't it? When you see even a character portraying or an actor portraying a character that's fictional, and that person starts singing, even if they rely on their acting skills to a certain degree to do the singing, you kind of can't fool them, right? Mm. You know, if you get if a character is a despicable character but moves you to tears with something that he or she is singing. Isn't that, and that's such a, I find that a really fascinating thing. It, it breaks down the barriers. It makes you have more compassion. Mm, it certainly does. You know, music music is a, a, a wonderful medium. 
It really is, and it's it's it has it's so. Even though I've spent you know forty years being a professional musician, and longer than that being a performing musician, um, I find that there's an endless fascination with that, and uh, uh, and it's an endless mystery, and I'm completely drawn to it about what makes what makes a piece of music touch your heart, you know. Anyhow, I could blab on about that for a long time. <laughs> well, uh, you talk about music that touches your heart. What what song from, from the last four years of Nashville has touched you the most? Oh, man, it would be hard to say. There are so many. Gosh, it's probably a question that I should think about. Um, uh, when the Right One Comes Along is, is one of my very, very favorite ones. Um, that, that Sam and Claire sang. It's a song by the Striking Matches and Georgia Middleman wrote it from season one. That one really gets me. There's a one called History of My Heart that, uh, that uh, Jonathan Jackson sang in this last season. That's just one of the greatest songs I think we've ever recorded. And um, those, those two might be my favorite ones. Well, there's a lot of songs to choose from. I mean, how many, do you know roughly how many you've made now? I'm not sure, but it's several hundred. Yeah, it's you know probably. Like, if you think that we had 88 episodes, and there are three songs, even three new songs on each episode, that's over 240. You know, that's you know over you know 260 or something right there. Mm. Um, uh, and that's about. I mean, that's that's around what it is. I you know occasionally there would be a song that would play more than once in it. Um, uh, but also there were several episodes that had more than three songs. So, uh, so it's, you know, my guess is somewhere between 260 and 280. That's an impressive amount of music for four years. It's a lot of songs. It's a lot of songs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully people will continue to enjoy them no matter what. Well, I think that the songs stand alone of the, you know, of the show. You can buy them on the albums, you can buy singles in some countries, and people can just continue to enjoy that music. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that a whole lot of people will, and it'll keep this culture, uh, you know, keep the culture of it alive. Because really, truly, uh, you know, that's the the uh, the part of it that that is goes beyond fiction. It goes beyond characters portraying or you know actors portraying characters or the situations that the characters find themselves in. It's something that really is absolutely real and touches people. So you've had such a dynamic and incredible career so far. What what are the highlights been? Oh gosh, you know, playing the White House last year, T Bone got me to be in a band, a fantastic band, uh, performed in front of President Obama and and uh, Michelle Obama and a number of others at the at the White House a little over a year ago. That was one of the greatest things. Of course, playing with Bob Dylan. Um, I have a group with two of my friends in Canada called Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and we've had a few uh, instances where we've performed in Canada in very emotional circumstances. So there, all of those things have been great, and there's so many over the years. You know, uh, I've played and worked with a wonderful Canadian artist named Bruce Coburn, and uh, I was in his band for several years, and um, and then uh, and then I've been producing his records for well for about 20 years now um most of them and uh so working with him has been a truly fantastic experience uh 
you know, there's there's so much. It would be hard to it'd be hard to go. To, I, I'd feel bad if I left something out. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, it's it's been an incredible you know, forty years for you. So looking forward, what have you got lined up that you can tell our listeners about? Well, I know that I'm going to be performing quite a lot live, uh, more in Canada than in the states, uh, in the next few months. I didn't, you know, I didn't put too much together before, you know, till, you know, because I didn't know if we'd be coming back or not. So mm. a fair bit going on. I'm producing an album for a blues artist named J.W. Jones, working with a group called Sugarcane Jane, who are based in Southern Alabama, who are wonderful. So I'm going to do a few different record projects playing on a few different people's albums. Uh, so it's, it's you know, some good times, doing quite a few festivals in Canada this summer especially. So, uh, you know, supporting Rich in Love, you know, my new album. Mm-hmm. And I have an idea for a show that I've kind of been moving towards uh, called The Living History of the Blues that would involve performing with myself and my band and perhaps two or three guests on each show and kind of in a hopefully not dry way, but in a really, you know, em- you know, emotional and fun way, playing, uh, tracing the, the history of blues music as to how it continues to impact on original contemporary music. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to do that, certainly in a, in a number of cities in Canada, and hopefully in some cities in other other countries as well. Mm. So uh, certainly keeping yourself busy for the next few months anyway. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, uh, just kind of open to whatever happens. Mm. Well, uh, finally, for our fans who want to stay in touch, where can people connect with you online? Uh, ColinLinden.com is the website, and that is a pretty good way to get a hold of me, but I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, and I'm not that great about all of it all, but... Uh, eventually it does it does get me and uh, I try and get back to people whenever I can well thank you so much for your time today Colin it's been truly a pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the best for the future thank thank you so much for having me on your show my pleasure my uh, absolute pleasure that was my chat with Colin Linden now our thoughts to go out to all the wonderful Nashville stars I've had on this podcast Adam Trudeau David Alford Nick Yondel and of course Colin we wish them all the best for the future and hope the show is picked up by another network now, don't forget to check out all our supporters, Mad Zombie Collectibles, Madman Entertainment, and Palace Nova Cinemas. All their details are on the website under the supporters section, and links to their sites can be found in the show notes for this podcast. Now, as always, I've been able to check out the latest movie reviews, including Alice Through the Looking Glass, which isn't out for another couple of weeks, so check, my, check out my thoughts on that right now, as well as The Man Who Knew Infinity, Whiskey Tanker Fox, and a whole lot more. And this coming Wednesday, don't forget to look out for my review of X-Men Apocalypse, which is uh, released in the States later in the week. Well, we'll be back later this month with another exciting podcast, but until then, I've been your host, Benjamin May McKay, and thanks for joining us. Music